From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest for this episode of Work and Life is David Berkus, a management professor at Oral Roberts. We spoke about his latest book, Under New Management, and important new practices being implemented around the world, including innovative ways to use email, company vacation non-policies, open workspaces, and more. Now, here is my conversation with David Berkus. David, welcome to the show. Oh, Stu, thanks so much for having me. It's so great to talk to you again. Ah, it's, it's great for you to be here. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, let's just jump right in. I, I'd love to know how you got into this study. Uh, what led you to want to write about the, the innovative companies that you highlight in Under New Management? Uh, how, how did you uh, get attracted to this idea, and, and why, why is it important for us to, to know about what's in Under New Management? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's probably similar to, to your work. Everything kind of starts with a question and a home. That's interesting. And my first book was called The, the Myths of Creativity, and it dealt with a lot of the misconceptions around creative and innovative work and what that also means for how we structure work and that sort of a thing. And it was, it was in that you can't write a book like that and not talk about 3M and 15% time, later Google and 20% time, and a couple other policies and practices uh, a lot of creative firms use. Um, to bring out the best in, in their people. And so that's hey, let me just jump in here, David. The, the two references you just made, not all of our listeners know about what 3M and Google and other companies are doing to allocate some portion of uh, every employee's time to doing something that they find interesting and cool on their own. Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. So yeah, that, that, that's the gist of the idea. And there's a lot of research around doing autonomous work is more intrinsically motivating and the mm-hmm. enhancement that makes on creativity and that sort of thing. And it was really that that set me down this road of, okay, well, I wonder what other you know, sort of different and newer ways to manage knowledge work are, are out there. And so that's what began um, the study and kind of we, we took a bunch of different ones and we ran it through a couple different tests. The, the first was, does it work in multiple industries? It's easy to look at a lot of these practices and go, oh, well, that's just technology firms or that's just mm-hmm. engineers. Um, so it had to work you know, it, at Google and it had to work at a supermarket or something like, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. And then there had to be research behind it. There had to, we had to be able to tie it into something from the world of social science to sort of prove why this worked. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's my background as an organizational behavior. So clearly if we can't prove it empirically, then it's, it's kind of a good idea that we don't know if it'll scale. So that was really how we arrived at 13 different practices that work across industries and really, I think, represent newer ways to manage this different type of work that we're asking people to do now. Most of our management theories were built on industrial work, factory work, mm-hmm. et cetera. And now that we're doing a different type of work, we sort of need to rewrite the rule book. It is a different world that we are in now. And, and the practices that you've identified here are emergent in response to the new uh, the new new world order that we're all trying to navigate in terms of technology, globalization, changing values of the workplace. 
Uh, I, I really uh, appreciate that you found that the, the best practices, quote unquote, what's worked in one place may not necessarily pl- apply to another organization, that there have to be unique solutions that are um, grounded in the local uh, context. I mean, this is the essence of what I do with my students and clients with, with Total Leadership is to find uh, is to help people to understand what matters most to them, to the people around them, to their world, and then to innovate, to experiment, to create customizable uh, solutions that they try, and then they discover what works and what doesn't. But there is no one best way. Or is there? So I don't know that there's one best way as far as an exact way to have a best practice. You know, best practice is really code for kind of stuff that other people have tried. And every time mm-hmm. I see a company try and adopt a best practice, they always tweak it. And so mm-hmm. you know, in, in Under New Management, we look at a, a lot of different principles, but we look at them from different angles. You know, so um, to give you an example, uh, I heard you say at the top of the hour to talk about kind of email and the effect that that has on our life. Well, there are some companies that are banning it entirely and yes. others are setting restrictions on it. And all of them are in with this uh, overall idea that the distraction cost may not be worth the communication cost, but just how you implement it, that varies by company and varies by mm-hmm. sometimes even by team or by person. Well, let's dig into that. Your first chapter is called Outlaw Email. Uh, and I think that's an imperative, right? Not the kind of email that's outlawed. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, you're saying Outlaw Email, uh, and it starts if I can read from it, uh, corporate leaders across the globe are discovering that banning or limiting their employees' access to email is making them more, not less productive. That's an interesting paradox. What did you discover there? Yeah, so this this line of inquiry really started with the discovery of a firm uh, in France, Atos Origin. They're about a 70,000-person IT services firm that decided to pursue the goal of becoming zero email. Uh, zero internal email. Obviously, to some extent, you've got to communicate with clients however the client wants to be communicated with. But in terms of internal processes, they found that it really was not worth the, the added cost. It's, it's actually a pretty poor medium for communication. There's a lot that's lost between tone sure. of voice, between the real-time aspect of being able to kind of have ideas merge and bounce off of each other. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that's lost in the communication. And then the cost of it is and we, we used to, there used to be a time where your email was just at your work computer and just like your voicemail at, at the phone on your desk, there was on time and off time. And there, were, there was the ability to sort of shut it down. Nowadays, we, we really don't have that. In terms of home life, if you've got a smartphone, you're taking your work home with you every single night. And even in terms of at the workplace, if Outlook or whatever um, mail system your company uses is pinging you every five minutes with a new email, then it's really limiting your ability to do the deep work that really creates value for the firm. I mean, I think all of us have had those days where we clear out our email inbox and we think, oh, I was so productive today. I'm at inbox zero. And then we realize we didn't actually do very many value creating opportunities. We just responded to emails all day. Mm-hmm. And so Atos and, and several other firms have, have found this and are beginning to put limits on it. Atos is, is one of the few I know that decided to ban it entirely and move to a, a different system for managing communication, but most are... What, either... what replaced email for their internal communication? Some sort of message system or a version yeah, of Slack? So, so they, yeah, they built actually a custom... It's kind of like a mix between Slack, Facebook, and a message board uh, in, the, in the way that it works. But the biggest thing that it has 
is it is not interruptive. You, you only go to it when you want to go to it. Um, and uh, usually projects are, everybody can see the line of communication. So, you know, sometimes you're brought in as a CC, but you can't actually see what's been talked about before in that email thread that doesn't happen in their system. So you have, you have that background and they found that this is, this is a better system because it allows people to, to shut themselves off at the end of the day, but it also allows them when they need to be doing the deep work to not have it interrupt them every time, like, like an automatic, um, send and receive that's usually going off every five minutes for, most default settings on email providers. So it's definitely a custom solution. And, and I mean, to your point earlier about customization, it's definitely a custom solution, but we've seen other uh, firms be able to go straight to something like a Slack. I, I really don't endorse um, straight out of the box solutions because I think everybody has to customize it to some extent of in course. order to meet the communication needs of their firm. So, uh, you know, there are uh, other firms out there, uh, not just uh, in France, there's a, a, in Germany, for example, at Daimler. Uh, here in Philadelphia, there's a consulting firm called Vynamic where uh, they're doing something a little bit different. And I'd love your take on this. Uh, where, you know, after a certain time, emails are not allowed or they won't be responded to. And in some cases, I think what they're experimenting with at Daimler is, you know, they'll actually be deleted if you send an email, like over the weekend. Uh, so w what is your thought about um, the outlawing of email during, you know, uh, prescribed blocks of time that apply universally to everyone in the organization? Yeah, so my favorite prescription, and I think the one that most firms can adopt, is that idea of blocking off sort of sacred time. And a lot of firms are, are coming up to this idea of, you know, like you had mentioned, we shut off the servers at a certain time. And in, in some situations, it's, you know, evenings and weekends. And usually what happens is not that the email is deleted, but it just stays in your outbox. So if, you, if you're the one that actually can uh, work at 11 o'clock at night, you can still respond to that email, but it doesn't send until 8 a.m. the next day. So you're not disrupting the people who've decided, no, that is mm -hmm. sacred time. That's time for something else in my life. And that's the system that I really, really like. I just, I encourage a lot of companies to go one step further and find a few hours during the work day to mm -hmm. also do that. I mm -hmm. think you know, usually between 10 and maybe one or whatever the most productive hours uh, in your, your work day are, usually I think you should carve out that time for yourself to be able to do the deep work and not be interrupted too. That's, that to me is, I think, the missing piece from a lot of these mail on holiday or no mail on evenings and weekends programs is- Build it into the work day. That work is important too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's just dig a little further on this question of um, uh, of blocking time that outlaws email. One of the critiques of that model is that you um, apply a universal solution that obviously is not going to work for everyone. Some people are going to want to do their email for a couple hours over the weekend. That that makes Monday morning a lot easier for them. So, um, you know, that's, that's where I've always seen uh, a significant risk in these programs that say you cannot work during this time. Because for some people, that uh, offline time, quote unquote, turns out to be uh, a really good time for them in terms of how it fits in with their family life structure or what they do in the community or, you know, their own private work, spiritual work, emotional development, physical health needs, whatever it is. Everybody's got a different schedule, right, uh, that, that suits their lives. Uh, so what do you say to that critique, David, of that, you know, the, um, the blocked time from an organization's sort of impos imposing that, uh, those boundaries, 
might not work for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, so I under, I get what you're saying. I think this is one of actually the reasons I'm I'm very for the idea of shutting off the servers, doing it at that level. So, you know, essentially, if you were to say, hey, we don't send emails after six o'clock, and then somebody does, and there's a stigma attached to that, then I, I totally mm-hmm. agree with you. the The beauty of doing it at the at the server level is that you can do that send and receive, you know, right before the the blocked out time comes in. And if you still want to clear out your email inbox and get ahead on those sort of things, you can still do that. the The challenge is email is such an integrated form of communication. I mean, similar to the phone, even if we're doing work at 11 o'clock at night, we would very rarely think, oh, I'm going to call my coworker because I, this is good time for me. Clearly, it's good time for, for her. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't do that. But email in, in 2016 does that. The message goes right to your phone, just like you had sent them a text or uh, called them exactly, you know, or, or whatever. So that's one of the reasons I think doing it at the server level where you can still uh, respond to the emails, they just build up in the outbox and they don't actually arrive in the other person's inbox until it's a good time for, for them. I mean, every, I, I will mm-hmm. say that every company, I think, can't go from zero to no emails. It's a process. And the biggest thing is I'm, I'm taking this policy and trying to encourage companies to start the conversation on what works for us. And we might find that's banning email entirely like an Atos. We might find that the server thing. We might find it, it's something else, like even just having a conversation about what in each individual team, what do you want the, mm-hmm. the off hours to be or something like that. But really, that's my goal with the book is that we at least start this conversation. I'm totally comfortable with the idea of different companies doing different things. Yeah, I think it, it has to work that way. And, and further, to, to push that idea further, what you want ultimately, I think, is uh, individualized solutions that work for the employee in the context of her larger life uh, so that what people have is you know access to the tools and resources that give them the opportunity to, to work when they want and to also do the other things that matter to them when it works for them. Let's talk about vacations because this is, uh, I mean, it's summertime when we're speaking right now, and a lot of people are either coming back from vacation or going on vacation. Some people listening might be on vacation right now. Um, what did you discover about um, quote-unquote unlimited vacation, another one of the practices that you wrote about in yeah. Yeah, uh, unlimited vacation, or, or I, I sometimes like to call it the, the no vacation policy policy, right? That our, <laughs> that our policy is we don't have one. And, mm-hmm. you know, this came on my radar because of Netflix. They're probably the most um, popular company to make this switch. Their uh, CEO and some of their senior leaders published this thing they called the, um, the uh, I'm forgetting the entire name, but it was essentially their culture slide deck. So it was all yes. about the Netflix culture. They published it online and that set off uh, sort of a firestorm of attention because they mentioned this unlimited vacation thing. Mm-hmm. The, the story behind how it came into being was essentially as they were getting ready to go public, their um, internal auditors and people like that said, you know, your your current system is is interesting. It was it was kind of the usual system. You get a certain number of days off. You use them or lose them. Maybe you roll some over. Uh, but it was all you keep track of it on your own. And they said there's that's not enough accountability. We we need a more um, accountable system if we're going to go public because of the level of scrutiny that we're going to be exposed to. And mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, there, there was a couple employees who brought up this idea that you're not tracking the times we're coming in in the days, the times we're leaving. You're not tracking the days we're working. Why are you asking us to keep track of the days we're not? And so, you know, leadership got together. They checked with uh, a bunch of the attorneys and, and said, you know, is there actually a law that says we have to offer a vacation policy? And they found a no. In California, there's no law saying you, you have to offer a specific number of days or anything like that. And so they said, great, we'll just do away with it all. Our, our vacation policies take 
whatever time you need. And that since then, a lot of companies have, have adopted that. And yeah. across the board, what I think is most interesting is on average, companies take employees at companies take about the same amount of time off. What I like about it is the movement to trust, the idea that says we trust you to manage this in a way that works for you and for us. We're not going to nickel and dime you. We're not going to treat you like children. We're going to trust you. If you if you betray that trust, we're going to deal with that. But we're going to start from a position of trust. And that's what I really think these policies are about. Yes, trust and uh, it's just freedom, right? It's, it's giving people the uh, autonomy, as you said earlier, to choose uh, you know, the where, the when, the how of when they get work done. And, of course, that enhances commitment and gives, uh, gives people a greater motivation to want to contribute. W- what have you found about um, the impact of these uh, companies? And now there are quite a few, and we've, we've actually talked to a few of them on the show here over the last couple of years. What's your take on the, uh, the performance impact of the no vacation policy policy? What did you call it? Sorry, I didn't get, quite get that right. You no, know, that's exactly right. The, the the no vacation policy policy. Okay, or, good. Or vac- yeah, or vacation non-policy, whatever uh, you want to call it. Um, what's been know, the performance impact of those? So there hasn't been a, a study of, you know, done rigorously enough mm-hmm. to make a declarative statement like this goes up. Overall, the, the trends that we kind of see, I think there, there are increases in morale, which we know is, is correlated with increases in productivity. There's increases in that sense of trust, in that autonomy, increases with a lot of things we know are um, correlated with financial performance. We, we really haven't done any studies at the level of rigor to mm-hmm. say, yes, unlimited vacation policy yields a 10x. Well, that'd be actually amazing, but even a 10% increase in, in financial performance. We haven't seen that yet. What I do think is interesting is comparing and contrasting the times that the policy is successful increasing in morale to the times that it's not. There are several hmm. companies, one I look in the book at in the book, uh, the Chicago Tribune company, that implemented the policy and it backfired. And when you dive into the, the nitty gritty of how the policy was rolled out, what you see in that particular instance was the way that the policy worked, they had a previous accrued PTO time that got paid out at the end of the year or when you left the organization. And what they said was that everybody's going to go to unlimited vacation policy, but that's going to kick in after you've earned out your paid time off. Hmm. So in other words, we're not going to pay you for that time that you've earned like we would at the end of the year or when you left. We're just going to let you spend that, and then your unlimited vacation is going to get kicked in. So it immediately betrayed that sense mm-hmm. of trust mm-hmm. situation. It caused a revolt, and within three weeks, they had reverse course to the other policy. And I think that really underscores that point of making sure that people feel this is a move to trust. This is something that is giving more autonomy to people, not not a move that we don't trust you and that we're trying to sort of nickel and dime you, et cetera. Uh, in the time we have remaining, I want to make sure we get to your predictions about how you think uh, you know new management is is going to be continued uh, continually evolving. But before we do, let me just ask you about the open closed office uh, issue. Um, <laughs> almost thirty years ago, I, I taught at the Helsinki School of Economics for a couple months, and uh, I'll never forget how they had the offices set up there. Uh, this was in 1988. In the offices at the at the Helsinki School of Economics, there were three lights outside the door. There was a red, there was an amber, and there was a green. And from inside your office, you could you you lit up whichever one you wanted to signal to anyone outside of your door. And uh, you know, if it was red, it was you know, get the heck away from me. I don't you know, private, do not enter. If it was yellow, you should knock, and then I'll let you know. And if it was green, you just open the door and walk right in. 
So we actually, there were traffic signals there on every person's door. Um, I don't know that you've ever seen that, but I know that you have thought a lot about open offices, closed offices. What did you find? Yeah. So, you know, what's fascinating is that's actually the exact system I use in my home office with my kids. So no way. We don't have lights. What we have you is... You should get those lights, David. I'm telling know, you, it right? was very cool. It, the, the door is either unlocked, locked, or locked with a red do not disturb sign on it. And so they know that like locked means knock, but red do not disturb means, you know, mm-hmm. hey, I'm, I'm in an interview on right. the radio. Please don't come in at all. Right. So we have that. Sure. That bring them in. Let's talk to your kids. <laughs> Find out the reality of the, the scene behind the scene for David Burkus. <laughs> well, it's working. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so overall, I mean, there, there is definitely uh, with the open office move, there, mm-hmm. there's always the, the good reason and the real reason. And the, the, the reason that we're hearing the good reason that we're hearing a lot of uh, backing on is this idea of serendipitous collaboration, mm-hmm. making it easier to interact with people, increases in communication, all of those sort of things. That's the, that's the good reason. I actually think the real reason is it's a whole lot cheaper to maintain an open office, to have just long tables and everybody's got a workstation at the long table rather than everybody has you know, a built-out office for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think the cost is what's driving it more than the benefits because mm-hmm. the benefits, when you dig into the research, don't actually outweigh other costs. So there is our increases in levels of stress. There are increases in actually my favorite study is shows that people who work in an open office are more likely to call in sick. So either they're legitimately ill or they're just sick of their open office workplace. But in either case, Hmm. we're seeing a loss in, in productivity. And I don't believe those benefits outweigh the cost. I think like a lot of other things, the the best move we're seeing in office design is to create what I like to call a palette of places. Other architects and designers use different terms, but the idea is we have a variety of different types of spaces mm-hmm. and you have your home base, but you can also find a wide open space for when you want to be around other people. You can find a closed off mm-hmm. space for just yourself. You can have conference rooms of all sizes, depending on the size of people that you need. So it's this idea of giving people a, an array of different options and letting them choose what work style works uh, best for them. I'm sorry, what workplace works best for mm-hmm. them because surprise, surprise, one of the best uh, correlations between environment and productivity is perceived control. The extent to which somebody feels like they control their workplace, sure. their in- work environment, dramatically affects their productivity. Yes, and that is really an underlying theme here. Uh, you, you also write about uh, the, the uh, reduction in uh, management hierarchy to the effect of perhaps eliminating it, as some organizations like Zappos famously with their holacracy experiment are doing. Um, so no managers at all is, uh, is one of the things that you have observed in some organizations. Can you just in 30 seconds give us the headline of what does that look like and how does that actually work? Well, and just because there's no managers doesn't mean there's no management. I actually like to put it this way now that management is too important of a job to be left to managers alone. But, you know, the idea is the shift in work that we've been going over for the last hundred years is it used to be that managers knew best what to do. There was one best way. Now it's the person doing the work that usually knows how best to do it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the functions of management are better turned over to that person or that team uh, to manage. And so the role of manager becomes much more coach and guide by the side. And in some cases, companies have found they managed to eliminate it entirely and just have individual contributors and teams managing themselves. So this decentralization of authority, uh, granting of greater freedom and trust and autonomy to the worker, uh, how do you see that affecting people's lives beyond work? 
Well, I, th- I think this is sort of the beginning of an awakening that we actually do have more control over our lives than we think. And I think overall, that's a good thing. I mean, one of the reasons I've actually been such a fan of the total leadership model is exactly that. It starts with realizing that you have more control over the type of work you do, but you also have more control over your, your health life, your family life, your spiritual life, et cetera, mm-hmm. than you think you, you do. And that's really what I think is most encouraging, this idea that, I mean, we we know from decades of research in self-determination theory and, and Edward Deasy's research that, that autonomy and a sense of improvement and mastery dramatically improve people's intrinsic motivation and in all levels. So I really see this as a good thing. So long as it's part of a larger trend, I think we're going there. I can see it in the workplace. And now uh, maybe that I need your help studying it in, in the other uh, domains and spheres of our life. But I think we're there. I think we're getting there, I should say. Well, I'd be happy to talk with you more about how we can uh, explore that together. Uh, last question for, for you, though, for tonight, David, and that is uh, what, do you, what do you see as you look to the future and the evolution of uh, management thought and practice, uh, especially in light of uh, you know, the, the, the gig economy that's emergent, you know, contract employees, um, and how uh, technology really is continuing on a daily basis to uh, to upend, uh, you know, and create all kinds of new possibilities. What's what do you see unfolding in the years ahead? I'll tell you what I'm, I'm what I'm looking at now is I'm fascinated with I think the gig economy is part of a larger sort of breaking down of the definition between who's in the organization and who's out of the organization and and this isn't a new idea I mean Charles Handy talked about this in the in the 80s but I think that's what's most interesting is we're seeing an increase in organizational networks and considering stakeholders beyond the people who are just W2 or 1099 employees there there probably need to be more terms and more definitions for type of workers because we're seeing it work on a network level much more than just an organizational inner out level. And that's, that's really interesting to me. And that's where I'll, I'll be looking over the next couple of years, because I find it fascinating. I think that's a trend that's going to have a lot more impact on our management ideas. Yeah. And I would suggest, uh, you know, that this whole question of boundaries extends not just in terms of inter-organizational boundaries and, you know, how those lines are becoming more permeable or just disappearing altogether, but the the question that you know that we focus on here a lot on the show, and if you have further insights about this, let's bring you back and talk about them as you as you explore this research further. Boundaries among the different roles that we play in different parts of our lives. Uh, but your your research is uh, is is really very accessible and uh, wonderful to read, and I, I hope that our listeners will uh, will take advantage of uh, the great work that you have. Put into under new management how leading organizations are upending business as usual. David Burkus, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. For me too. Uh, and for our listeners, you, if, if you want to uh, communicate with, with David Burkus, one easy way to do that is on Twitter. He is at David Burkus, D A V I D B U R K U S. And his book, again, is Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Burkus. I thought we had some great back and forth on the topics of emails, effects on productivity, company vacation non-policies, and the benefits of flexible workspaces. The biggest takeaway you have more control over the type of work you do than you might think. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. 
This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me 